So this morning, um, we're going to continue on, and I think maybe we might be wrapping up our teaching on reprobation in the doctrines of grace. And we're still looking at conditional election, um, and we're, we're covering the, the reprobation part, the difficult um, decree. And the first thing I want to touch on is there are three things that uh, reprobation does not teach. And sometimes people, you know, get, can get confused and think that this is what reprobation is all about, um, but it is not. So first off, and I, and I think most importantly, because this is, this is where some people kind of um, get off track here on reprobation, it does not harm the free offer of the gospel. So I would say that this is, this is contra to what many call hyper-Calvinism. Um, the idea of hyper-Calvinism, although there, <clears throat> there are many definitions and trying to pin down exactly what hyper-Calvinism is depends on who you're reading. Um, but some of the general concepts of, hy- of hyper-Calvinism, um, as some of you are undoubtedly aware, is that um, to make an offer of the gospel to people in general, which would include, of course, the, the elect and the non-elect, would be detracting from God's sovereignty. So um, a hyper-Calvinist may be opposed to uh, preaching the gospel to those if the preacher does not know if they are elect. Um, in the past centuries where this really came into uh, prominence was when certain men stood opposed to missionary efforts. And, and this was part of hyper-Calvinism, that there was no need to send missionaries out because if a person or people were to be saved by God, God in his sovereignty would make sure that they were saved. Um, However, we're going to see that this does not really align with what Scripture um, tells us. So <clears throat> we approach this idea of um, the, the fact that <clears throat> the, 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 the reprobation does not harm, does not, should not take away from the preaching of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel to all people, <clears throat> because we do not know who is elect and who is reprobate. Right? Looking at a person, we cannot and should not judge them and put them in one category or another. We all know that people have a public face and they have a private face. Someone that we see for only a short period of time um, on an occasional basis may appear to be one type of person, where in, a, in, in, in actuality, in truth, if you were to talk to uh, people that know them best and spend a lot of time around them, they may, they may be entirely different people. And it could work either way. Someone that we think is, you know, doesn't seem like they're, they're very pleasant may turn out, once you get to know them, to be just a wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, people, people are different in that way. Um, so since we don't have this knowledge, 
and we shouldn't pretend to have this knowledge of the elect and the non-elect, then we must proclaim the gospel freely to all men, to all people. And it, it remains entirely true that if anyone receives Christ, he or she will be saved. And I want us to take a look at John's gospel. We're going to start off in John chapter 1 this morning. John chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 12 and 13 of John 1. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christ knows his people. We may not. Let's look at John 3.16. We all know that verse, right? Probably one that just about everybody knows. If you've watched football games, you you at least have seen that reference. Usually, I I know for a while they tried to do away with that. I don't know if it's come back. I don't watch uh, the NFL anymore. Um, but you'd always see it at the end zone. Someone would hold up John 3.16, right? People know that, but we're going to read John 3.16, but we're going to read um, the whole section where Christ is talking. We're going to read to verse 21 and see what Christ says about salvation and, and the gospel. Um, so he, he says, and John records, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everybody has heard that. But usually, whoever's preaching this will stop, or whoever's repeating it, whoever's witnessing, will stop right there. Well, let's go on. Let's see what else our Lord says. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned... But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now here we have Jesus Christ himself talking about the elect and the non-elect, the, the, those who are saved and those who are reprobate. So we see that this is, this is a biblical truth that we're dealing with. And in these verses that we just looked at, Jesus brings together God's sovereignty and our responsibility. In John 6, 37, very short passage that, you, that uh, I'm going to read to you. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now notice, he, our Lord says that these people that are given to him by the Father will come to him. Now that right there, that, that denotes a responsibility on the, the part of the elect to respond to this call that they hear, that they are to come to Christ. 
So that's our responsibility. You know, but we see God's sovereignty in this also, don't we? Because the Father is giving these people to the Son. So this has been difficult through church history for people to understand. And it seems like the, the, more, the further we've gotten away from the Reformation, um, the more difficult it is for us to understand this, for people in general, when I say us, that's who I mean, for people in general to understand this. Now, there was an interesting experience that I read of in the biography of Arthur W. Pink. He was called to pastor in Australia. He, he, was a, he was a British citizen. He went to Australia as a pastor and um, ran into issues there. And the, and the, the main issues were the, the generally universal rejection of the reform doctrine of election, which Pink believed in, absolutely believed in, saw that the, the scripture clearly teaches this and that he had to teach this. And he was asked, if you believe in election, then why do you preach? See, here we we're touching on this area of hyper-Calvinism. It's like, okay, if God, if God decides who's elect and it's not our decision, then what are you doing here? Pink had a very good answer. He says, because I am commanded to do so. What Pink is saying is that God's word tells me I must do this, that this is how God works. Let's look at in the book of Romans. We're going to explore that a little bit, a little bit closer, a little bit better. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, 13 and 14 is what I'm going to read. Romans 10, 13 is one of my favorite verses. This, this one has meant a lot to me um, because of uh, experiences I had in law enforcement where um, not only sp- I experienced spiritual salvation, but, but physical uh, salvation, calling on the Lord in dangerous situations. So Paul's writing here, and he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You notice will. This positive, this affirmation. There's no wiggle room there. Then he goes on, and this is, this is important when it comes to this idea of um, the, the gospel not being harmed by reprobation. How then will they call on him, that's Christ, the Lord, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? He's posing this question to his audience. How does this happen? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? See what Paul's saying? That this, this is the way that God has decreed that his plan of salvation will be spread amongst his image bearers. That flawed men who themselves are sinners who are fallen, who need a savior, are the ones that will present this gospel plan to other fallen people, to other sinners. Let's, all, let's also look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Again, Paul's writing, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. See, Paul realizes that this does seem a bit foolish, that fallen men can present the perfect gospel to other fallen men. But it's wise in the eyes of God. We may not understand it. We may think that there's got to be a better way, but this is what God has decreed. So we cannot take away, just based on what God has, has revealed to us, we can't take away the importance of preaching the gospel freely to all people. Second thing that reprobation does not do it doesn't harm our assurance of salvation Many people, I would say, struggle with this, especially early in their experience of being Christians, that they, they respond to the call of the gospel. And yet, they wonder, am I truly saved? Is this just something temporary? I know other people where it's been temporary. Okay, so at church I've learned about God's sovereignty. What if this is not God's sovereign will? What if this is just my will? Now I've learned about election and I've learned about the non-elect, the reprobate. What if I'm really not elect? Um, and then you get yourself trapped in this cycle of, of, of doubt and self-examination. Well, self-examination is good. Um, we should always be examining our lives but we need to do it in a proper context. This is, our, our assurance is not based on our reading, our ability to know God's secret decrees. It's not based on, the, on our, well, I've got to figure out if I'm elect or reprobate, or if they're elect or they're reprobate. No, that, that's not it. That those things are secret. We only know what God will reveal to us. And as, as I've said before, and I'll say it again, because I think it's very important, if you're hearing God's word preached and it, is, it means something to you, you're responding to it, then brothers and sisters, I say that God is sending you a sign that you are amongst his people and that he's calling you to him. That we should not think negatively, well, I, I, you know, I hear the, the, the message preached, I hear God's word spoken, and man, it's, being, it's like the preacher's talking to me personally. I'm hearing this, and it's moving me, and it's causing me to want more of God. It's causing me to want Christ in my life. It's causing me to turn away from the stuff that I did before. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. And do not deny the Holy Spirit. Don't get trapped in this, this, this quandary of, well, I don't know for sure. God wants to provide us with 
assurance of his love, of his salvation for us. We focus on the promises of God, not on our doubts, not on God's secret decrees that we are not privy to, that we will not be privy to, and there's a good reason why we are not. I may not be able to explain it to you, but God has his reasons, and we must bow to those reasons that he is our God, our creator, and he knows what's best for us. Third thing that reprobation does not do, and this is where we're going to touch a little bit more on this idea of what's often called hyper-Calvinism. Reprobation does not imply that salvation being elect and reprobation being non-elect are exactly equal. They're not exactly the same thing. They don't operate in the same way. They're not parallel in every respect. So they're not running side by side, equal distance the whole way from the call of the gospel to the end of our life. Sproul writes about this. And I think he puts it in a very easy way to understand. If I can understand it, then I feel pretty good about talking about you know, what, what's being presented in, in a book. So <laughs> Sproul is examining the idea of the elect and the non-elect. And he asks the question, do we now have what people call double predestination? And his answer is yes, we do. We can't not escape that. But does that mean they're exactly the same? And, and how are they double? How, how is this idea of predestination, election for one, reprobation for the other, how is this double? So he says in classical Reformed theology, we have a rejection of what is often called, let me put it here, equal, Ultimacy. A rejection. Equal ultimacy, Sproul says, basically means symmetrical predestination. The elect and non-elect, the predestination of both, running completely parallel, side by side, being exactly the same. There's an exact balance, in other words, between 
election and reprobation. God works the same way in the elect as he does in the reprobate. Sproul says that this is, in the words of many, hyper-Calvinism. He does not agree with using that term. He actually calls it anti-Calvinism. So when we talk about this idea of equal ultimacy, we have to, we have to see a difference here because they're, they, they are, both the decrees are equally ultimate in the sense that both decrees of God ultimately bring about the end results that God has willed. Okay, so Sproul's not saying that. But he's saying this symmetrical parallelism is something that we have to avoid. That there is a difference between them. There is a symmetry, asymmetry to them. They're, they're, they're not uh, parallel. Um, so, and the way they're not is that the blessings ordained by God's eternal election are received entirely by God's grace apart from works. There's nothing we do to make ourselves elect. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves, you know, uh, better suited candidates for election. Scripture tells us the elect are determined before the creation of the world. So that we have nothing at all to do with it. However, eternal reprobation works differently. The curses that are ordained by God's eternal reprobation are fully deserved because of the sins of the person who has passed over, because of the sins of the reprobate. So that's the difference that Sproul is pointing to. And I think it's, it's easy to understand in, in that sense. At least, at least I hope it is. Um, so when we, we deal with this idea of election and the idea of reprobation, a question comes up frequently anyway. And that question is, let me do it with my eraser. Oh. <clears throat> and that question is, is God just? Well, we got to be careful how we ask the question. It could be a good question. It could be a presumptuous question as many questions can be. I think this is important to examine. So there are many people, as all of you know, who fault God on the matter of election. So even if we're convinced that God does operate this way, which I think we must conclude, because the Bible clearly teaches it, we've, we've looked at the verses, it is in there. Um, if you've sat through this class for any period of time, you cannot deny the fact that, that we find these doctrines in Scripture. So if we read the Bible honestly, that has to be our conclusion. Nevertheless, people, even us at times, may cry out that it is not right for God to be selective. 
Paul asks this in Romans 9.14, is God unjust? Well, he asks, asks it a little bit different. Is God unjust? And what does he answer but with an emphatic denial? No, not at all. God is not unjust. The people you know that are not believers, or maybe they're believers, but they reject Reformed theology, is that answer sufficient for them? No, no, I, I, I doubt it would be. Um, perhaps if you, if you have someone who, who is a, a, a believer and struggling with a certain doctrine, that that, that, that verse would be impactful, but for most people, it, it, it isn't. Um, there's more that we can say on this. But this is a good starting place, right? That, that we are told that God is not unjust. So we can start there, right? We, we, we know the answer to the question. Let's just figure out a better way to explain this answer. And the good thing about this short little answer Paul gives, I would say, is that it puts us in our proper place as fallen human beings. So we must recognize that first in order to learn about spiritual things. We have to know who we are and where we stand before we proceed further. And the very nature of our fallen condition, the very nature of sin, we see this immediately in Genesis, in the account of the fall, in chapter 3. The very nature of this whole rebellion is wanting to take the place of God, is wanting to be God, wanting to remove God from his position of supreme authority over all creation. And as long as we try to take God's place, we cannot hear what God is saying to us. If we are in a fight with God over who's in charge of everything, our ears are going to be closed. We're not open to hear the answer to the question that we're asking. So we have to resolve this in our minds first. Otherwise, all we do is we argue with God. We must learn to start confessing that God is God in order to learn, and that he is therefore right and just in his actions, whatever his actions are. Now, this could be problematic or troubling, I would say, to us, to all of us, that, that there are things that happen in the world that we simply abhor, that we would do anything that they have not occurred. But we cannot think for a moment that God suddenly lost control whether it be a small town in Texas, in a classroom, in an elementary school classroom, or something closer to home, in our own homes. God has not lost control. We, may, we cannot understand certain things. They're impossible to understand. They cause us great pain. We pray that things like that do not happen, but they do. But God is good. God loves us. God is in control. I wish I could stand before you as, as your preachers, one of your preachers, and in a, in a few words just take all the pain away that we suffer in this world. But for some reason, that pain is there. It's real. 
We're not imagining it. But God takes that and turns it into something far more wonderful than we could ever realize. That is our hope. That is our promise. That is our assurance. We alone in this world have hope because of that. We can face terrible tragedies because we can grasp hold of that. That we have Christ as our rock. Nothing can move the rock of our salvation. But how are we to understand God's justice? There's three essential elements to the answer of understanding God's justice. Thank God for his justice in a world that has very little apparent justice on its own. We have that assurance that God is just in all things. Number one, all deserve hell. All people deserve hell. That's what we deserve. It's not what we get. I'm not saying all people go to hell. All people deserve hell. Why? Because all of us, every single one of us, have been in complete and utter rebellion against the king of all creation. We have tried to supplant him on the throne through our own wicked desires. We've put ourselves first, not only over God, but over all others. That's our sinful human nature. We deserve condemnation for that. That is justice. When you know you're guilty and you stand before a judge and he finds you guilty, you don't have any right to complain, although many will because our human justice is imperfect, right? We see people who we know are perfectly guilty walk out of a courtroom scot-free. They get away with what they've done. We may know of other people who could be completely not guilty of what they're accused in our human courts and are convicted. Our justice is very imperfect from what we see, but God's justice is perfect. And the justice of God is so perfect it could do nothing else apart from sending every human being, every sinner to hell for their sin. We would have to pay for that sin. So the question is asked, okay, so I've done a few things in my life that I admit to. Why would I be punished eternally? Well, this is something theologians have struggled with. How do we explain this? Is that, that's a really a good question and one that perhaps you've thought of. Um, we sin against an eternal God. 
we sin against one who is immortal. The only one that possesses inherent immortality is God. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, through his good graces, can grant immortality. That is called conditional immortality. Apart from God, no one possesses immortality. If you sin against the eternal God, you've committed an eternal sin. that must be paid for eternally. It's like... You walk up to the ruler of a nation, whether it's a king in the olden days or a president or a prime minister today, and you assault that person, and then another person at the same time is in another situation, perhaps a bar room, and walks up to another person and assaults them. Do you think the punishment is going to be the same? No, it's not, because you're assaulting two different categories of people, if you will. You're assaulting a private person here, and you're assaulting someone who's a representative of an entire nation over here. So the law rightfully says, you have assaulted the entire people of that nation when you have struck this man or this woman. And that is, that is a valid legal premise right there. That's why when the courts, uh, in my experience, when the courts would rule or they'd sentence someone who's attacked a police officer. That was, that's a justification the courts use. That when you attack the police, you're attacking the very fabric of law and order in our society because the, law, the police officers are the one that represent the law of the people. It's not because police officers or presidents or prime ministers are better than any of us or that they're more important than any of us. Well, at time, their roles, I mean, honestly, I must say, someone serving as a leader of a country has more important uh, duties than I do at times and more weighty responsibilities. Okay, that's a given. But as a person, no, it's the same, right? But the idea is the, what they represent. And this, I think, in a, in a way, helps us to understand sins against God. If you're sinning against God, you're sinning against the entire created order. You're sinning against everything God has made, all the goodness that he has caused to come about. You're doing what, what has a goal of undoing the created order. Like on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about rest, God's rest, the idea of, of entering into stability, security, and safety through God, as opposed to the forces of chaos. When we sin against God, we are working on the side of chaos. We're undoing the stability. We're attempting to undo the stability and bring in chaos. Of course, we're going to fail. No one succeeds against God, but the idea is that you're attempting that as a sinner. So apart from God's electing grace in the atoning death of Christ, none of us would escape the sentence of hell, the sense of hell for eternity. Now when it comes to the idea of eternal hell, once again, another idea uh, to think about and this really applies to the reprobate, those who are, who are hardened 
towards God. Those who we see so frequently anymore on the news media, you know, on the TV screen, being interviewed, speaking out, protests, <clears throat> they have an absolute hatred for God. They hate their Creator. When that person dies and faces judgment, is that, he, is that hate going to cease or is it going to increase? It's going to, at the very least, continue, right? Jesus tells us that. There'll be, much, there'll be much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing of teeth has to do with just, it's, it's a Jewish idiom for anger. You're just so angry, you're just gnashing your teeth. That he, Jesus is saying, these people hate me, and they hate my father so much that they're just, their teeth are just, you know, grinding and gnashing over the thought of us. That is a sin that continues after judgment. That person is not going to stop hating the God that he or she hates once they are sentenced to hell. So there's going to be continual sin in hell. The hatred of God continues in hell and most likely is magnified, increases in hell. And it's Christ who keeps us from that destiny. We have great assurance in that. We love our Lord. I see that reflected in my brethren here at this church and brothers and sisters elsewhere. We do not belong amongst people who hate God. We would not be at home. They would not be our brethren. We stand out. We're different. We're different because God made us different. He transformed our hearts. He has given us this love for him that is the greatest gift that we could be given no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what horrors and tragedies we must face that is never taken away from us. Number two, if a person is saved... It is by mercy. Mercy only. Not justice. Mercy saves. Justice does not save. It's not intended to save. Both are very important attributes of who God is. He is both both merciful and just. These are two very different categories. Mercy has nothing to do with what people have done. You don't get mercy because of what you've done. You don't deserve mercy. We can't do anything to deserve mercy in any sense. Mercy finds its source exclusively in the will of God, not in the will of man, not in the power of man. Paul, writing in Romans 9.15, he cites Exodus 33.19, and he says what God says. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy and compassion is what God is speaking about 
in these places, both in Romans and the New Testament writing and in Exodus and the Old Testament writings. It's very important. It's repeated in both places, right? Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's to all of God's people. It should be very, very clear that God's people include both. And verses like this help us to understand that. But notice what God says about his justice in this verse. Nothing. He says nothing about his justice. He speaks only of his mercy. Justice and mercy are two different attributes. Like I said, they belong to two different categories. An election is a matter of mercy rather than justice. Third one. I think we can just fit this one in. If God saved anyone, because of anything, they might do. This then would be injustice. Why would it be injustice? Are we all the same? No, no, let's be honest. We're not all the same. Some people have inherited kinder, gentler characters, right? Others have inherited stubborn and obstinate characters. Some people are, are more trusting. Some are more skeptical, right? There's this idea with sociologists, they talk about this idea of environment or inheritance, right? That this is, this is what makes us, and they, and they fight over, you know, what is more important. Well, let's give due to both. I'm not saying that they're exactly right, but this is what... Um, what we are taught, this is what we see, so it's something we must deal with because it's evident to us. And some people, uh, apart from inheritance, they're raised in a more loving and moral environment, right? Others are raised in vicious, immoral environments and suffer neglect and cruelty. Now, that's, that's got to impact a person, right? How you're raised. If you're raised in a loving home, you have a much better chance of coming out of that a loving person, as opposed to if you raised in a in a in a in a house of horrors, and it does happen. People do come out of situations like that, you know, more or less intact. But we know that that impacts someone. It's 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 got to. So we have this idea of. Um, what if we have to contribute to God's salvation? Well, if I come out of a background where I had to fight for every single thing I got as a kid, for every bit of food that went into my mouth, I had to fight in my house. If I had to hide from other family members that terrorized me and were going to physically harm me, 
Am I going to come out of that the same as someone who's raised by loving parents who give them everything they need with proper discipline? What can I contribute as this very, very flawed person compared to someone who's been blessed by this household, this, this uh, godly household? If God based it on that, then I think we would have an argument that that's unjust. God doesn't base it on that. He bases it on his election. And we see people that come out of those horrible environments and that are changed. I've seen this in my police career. I've seen people come out of just horrible circumstances, out of, out of homes that are generationally drug addicted, generation, generationally involved in gangs where, where murder is a way of life. Murder is accepted. Murder is something that you prove your manhood by committing. I've seen men and women come out of those environments and try and change themselves. And I've seen it fail time after time after time. But I have seen those that have been changed by God where they have changed, where they have become a different person. And that is the only thing I have ever seen that rescues a person from that environment is the power of the Holy Spirit, the, de- the atoning death of Christ, and the love of the Father. If that person who was changed had to contribute to that, then God would not be the just and merciful God he is. But because we do not have to contribute to that, God is just. He is merciful. We have that assurance. So election alone starts with all people at the same point. This idea that we're all sinners and that we're all deserving of hell. Same point, same level. Doesn't matter our background. Doesn't matter where we come from. Doesn't matter who raised us. Doesn't matter what we experienced. God elects some and he passes others by entirely apart from anything we do. So there are objections to this. And next time we meet, we're going to talk about that because we we need to stop now and take a short break before our 11 o'clock service. So join me in a word of prayer uh, and we will close. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your mercy. We give thanks for your justice. We give thanks for your goodness. It is so hard for us to comprehend But, Lord, you reveal it to us in your word, and we give thanks for that, Father. We just ask that the Holy Spirit help us to be obedient, help us to to do your will, Father, that we may be um, people that reflect Christ to others. Father, bless this morning's service as we continue worshiping you. Father, bless Pastor Steve as he comes and delivers the message at 11 o'clock. And we praise you and honor you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.